And thank you. Please be seated. We turn now to Hebrews chapter 11, continuing our survey of the history of faith, the great work of God in redemption, and the trust that God's people have had to put in the Lord, even in the most unlikely, difficult circumstances, but finding that their faith has great reward. This, as you might have already guessed, is the section on Moses from chapter 11. Let me uh, begin reading in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we also would look to him who is unseen, invisible, we might also endure the various trials and temptations, even the treasures in our Egypt, as we might esteem the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than all that Egypt has to offer to us. Teach us again the way of all the saints that we might walk and uh, see this great company of witnesses, as it were, calling us on, calling us to follow on in the everlasting way. For it's in Christ's name that we do ask it. Amen. Well, as we've already seen, brothers and sisters, this is a letter about persevering faith. Faith is essential to the Christian, not just at the very beginning, as we are saved by faith, as it says, but it's essential every day afterward, as we have to make all these very difficult choices. And the book says, walk by faith, live by faith. This is one of the great modern challenges that we do face as more and more people are telling us that we can have whatever faith we like as long as we have it at home, in our rooms. And the more and more we are called to leave it at home, or at least in the church, but not to bring it out. Well, this is exactly the opposite of what the Bible calls us to do as we have to walk and make every life's choice according to this faith. You and I are to have a very active faith in this world, a faith that, as the Lord says, moves mountains in the here and now, faith that expects great things from God, faith that attempts great things for God. But as the passage reminds us, faith requires many difficult decisions again and again and again in the meantime. Noah, whom we read about earlier, had to become a boat builder. Abraham had to leave home and family and everything familiar, not even knowing where he was going. He had to build an offer and offer up his son altar and build, offer up his own son Isaac. This chapter reminds us from beginning to end that faith will not make our lives easier in the meantime, though faith absolutely has its great reward. These Jewish Christians, now to whom the letter is written, were under tremendous societal and economic 
pressure, that is to say, they'd already experienced the plundering of their goods, we read. They'd been excluded from family and relations. People wouldn't eat their homes or even greet them. They were treated as heathens and tax collectors. They were tempted to go back, back to the old ways, back, they they were told, back to Moses. Now, I want you to understand this author's pastoral genius. For he says, I, too, want you to go back to Moses. To go back to the ways of Moses. For didn't Moses know something about the loss of all of his worldly goods? Didn't Moses know something about having to leave his home Didn't he have to choose to suffer the reproaches of Christ instead of the treasures that he once enjoyed of Egypt? You Hebrew Christians, you're you're having to give up family and friends and possessions and so forth and bearing the reproach of Christ. But you say you're being tempted to go back to Moses? Moses is called to testify here that he made those very same choices for the sake of Christ. And he looks to Christ's reward, as must we. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. It's a very interesting way to argue, and a powerful one indeed. As he holds out the choice now that they are facing, not the choice that they are expecting, but the choice that Moses himself was given, the riches of Egypt or the reproaches of Christ. Which one is more valuable to you? These are the two points I'd like to consider with you today. That's it. The reproaches of Christ and uh, the riches of Egypt in reverse order as I just gave them to you. First, the riches of Egypt as they are given to us here. We, we read that uh, uh, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt. Well, Jacob was most reluctant to go down to Egypt, and understandably so, right? It was not the land of promise. He was suspicious. His grandfather Abraham, as we read a few weeks ago, had gone to Egypt, and it was, spiritually speaking, the lowest point of his life. Egypt was very different from Canaan. I mean, both lands were thoroughly heathen. But Egypt, Egypt held a very special trial, a very special temptation and challenge for the people of God. For as Joseph, the prime minister, brought them down to settle in what Pharaoh called the best of the land, they went down and lived in wealth and comfort and prosperity. And what was that going to mean for a family that had been so easily lured away by the evils of Canaan? Rich land and rich jobs as they began, they settled down to, be, to enjoy that new life and prosperity. And would they forget the promises of God? And when it came time for them to leave, would they still long for Egypt? It turns out that many of them did. Of course, even when Israel became enslaved, Moses faced this temptation as he grew up in the royal house. And that was another temptation for him on his own. Would he have faith to forsake vaunted wealthy Egypt and all its treasures. Walking by faith would require many difficult decisions. By faith, we read in verse 23, Moses, when he was born, 
was hidden three months by his parents. For they saw that he was a beautiful child. and They were not afraid of the king's command. Well, if you say, if they weren't afraid, why did they hide him? Well, trusting God doesn't mean taking reckless chances. They made the difficult decision to reject the king's wicked command. They did defy it, fearing the Lord anyway, much more than they feared the king. But they did reject that edict in the most prudent way, for they were risking their lives and the lives of their family. Imagine how difficult that decision was. If the baby cried any time of day or night, they would have to muffle him as they tried to calm him down. The choice to obey God by faith began in Moses' life right from the beginning with tremendous risks and difficulties. It involves an upfront risk every time we decide to follow the Lord rather than Egypt. They feared the Lord more than the king, and thank God that they did. He grew, uh, and then the real temptations started in. He became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. As a family member in Pharaoh's court, he would enjoy whatever pleasures he would seek. He lived in luxury, certainly had the best food, the education of Egypt we read elsewhere. He could have anything he wanted, and that is a very great trial. Now, I realize that some of you don't think that's such a great trial, but I hope that some of you, maybe the older among you, understand the profound danger it is when you can have whatever you want, because we too are pilgrims on the way to possess a promised land. We too have a future and a destiny ahead of us. We too, in God's providence, have settled for a time in a place where we're not going to stay permanently while God multiplies us into a mighty nation. In the meantime, though, we are in a place that is like Egypt in many ways. We living in an extremely prosperous nation and in a materialistic age amidst a comfort-worshipping culture. And we live an incomparably easy life considering the history of the world. It may not surprise you to learn that our generation spends more of its time entertaining itself than any generation of people that have ever been studied. We're extremely prosperous. Life is pleasant. And we can be drugged by pleasure and well-being. Um, our songs remind us that previous generations seem to have more of a pilgrim spirit. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. It's not so barren. It's a comfortable world. It's easy to put down roots, to trade the sweet by and by for the sweet here and now, as I've said. And uh, too many times it's just easy to enjoy the treasures of Egypt and all that it has to offer. Hardly a new temptation, though, for God's people, as we are reminded. The Bible warns us of the lure of Egypt's riches, of the deceitfulness of its wealth, some of which wealth was going to go to Canaan. And Moses tells them, even when you get to Canaan, and there when you are eaten and are full and have these houses that you didn't build and all these blessings that you didn't deserve, beware lest you forget the Lord, the perpetual temptation of God's people. When the Lord your God blesses you, he says, with large and beautiful cities and houses full of good things, and you have eaten and are full, beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt from the, land, from the house of bondage. And so it happened that the prophets repeatedly rebuked a rich but spiritually careless people for prosperity 
Egypt and all of its riches are a tremendous spiritual danger. Speaking to a rich young ruler, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Though he says, of course, it's possible with God, even this. But the Bible is full of these warnings and of accounts of people who were destroyed by prosperity. The parable of the sower, some of the seed that falls among thorns is choked out by the, uh, by, uh, ch- choked out the wheat, and Jesus gives this explanation. Now the seed that fell among the thorns are those people that when they have heard the word go out and are choked with the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. And skipping to the end, book of Revelation, we read that Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, the most prosperous of all the churches, I know your works that you're neither hot or cold. I could wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, not hot or, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich. I become wealthy. I have no need of anything. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, I won't multiply examples, but you see the danger, the trial that Moses faced and had to face by faith. Prosperity is often, in the Bible, the cause of great spiritual dullness. Sometimes people have called it affluenza, a kind of sickness. Uh, To borrow from Dylan, uh, people go gentle into the good night, dying spiritually while they are drugged by pleasure. Peace and prosperity so knitting us to the Egypt of this world that we don't even know that it and we are passing away. Now, the world has a great deal that can steal our hearts away at all times. But wealth and the comfort of life that it creates has a particularly distorting effect on the soul, tempting us to find our place in the here and now rather than laying up our hearts and treasure in heaven. If you lack material comfort, James says you should even rejoice because you have been blessed. Or as Rutherford warned once, faith is better for free air and the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. Some of you maybe have never really thought about this, but uh, the young, especially among you, when you have really so much going your way, especially college students, a great deal of time and, and freedom, uh, many people find that is the most challenging temptation you face in your life. Being able to do whatever you want. Doesn't sound like much of a temptation. Pavel Polos, who was exiled from Russia in 1987, He said to Christians in America, you know, in Russia, Christians are tested by hardship. But in America, you are tested by freedom. And testing by freedom is much harder. Nobody pressures you about your religion. You relax and you are not so concentrated on Christ and on his teaching and how he wants you to live. This is the drugging effect of the pleasures and riches of Egypt. A great challenge, a great temptation that must be met by faith. I've told you before about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, how he gave that Harvard commencement address back in 1970. Some of you are old enough to remember how fabulously important that revealing moment was in American history as this great Russian novelist, the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, who was everyone's hero at the time in the West, 
He had suffered greatly for his convictions in the Soviet Gulag. He had become a Christian and indeed a brilliant Christian writer whose prose really changed the world that he did more to delegitimize communism than practically anyone else and its system of inhumanity. Well, Harvard sought him for a commencement speaker, and no wonder. But in his Harvard address, he had a few words for the Western world. They were not expecting that. He said that we were rich, comfortable, pleasure-seeking, and self-congratulatory, foolishly believing we can find our fulfillment in materialism without so much as reference to God. Now, you might think that everyone would have nodded in polite agreement, but the more he talked, the more people were enraged. His speech evoked a howl in the Western world, and even our Christian president, Jimmy Carter, took some moments to criticize the speech publicly. But as many people noted at the time, we liked him while he talked about the sins of the East, but not when he talked about our own. When he prophetically warned about the profound spiritual dangers of our Western prosperity and of the kind of spiritual ruin that was already uh, producing in us. His glory days as a hero of the West were over one single Sunday morning in Boston. But he couldn't have been more right. It's hard for us who have received so much in the way of material blessing to view it as a trial and temptation. But it is and the cause of many other sins. When Moses chose to survey the choices, all the riches of Egypt and the reproach of Christ, he chose that day to lose it all. He chose a course that he knew would cost him all the riches and pleasures, the home in which he had grown up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and everything else. Why would he do that? By faith. Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Because, he said here, there is something more valuable than all the riches of Egypt. Do you know what that is? Something more wonderful, more pleasurable than all that Egypt could offer. What was more valuable than all the treasures of Egypt? Point two, the reproach of Christ. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. Uh, Christ's reward, by the way, he means, not the earthly reward that he got. What earthly reward did he receive after he gave up all those treasures of Egypt? He wandered in a barren wilderness for 40 years with a bunch of complaining people, right? But having to choose, the point is here, between the riches of Egypt and the reproaches of Christ. He said that even the worst things about following Christ are better than the best things that this world can give me. Do you believe that? The worst things about following Christ were better than the best things that the world could offer and that Christ knows how to reward his servants in time in a city that is yet to be seen. That is his hope. That must be our hope, every one, as we are tempted by the riches of Egypt. And we too must choose the reproach of Christ and say that the best things of this world do not compare with the trials involved in 
following Jesus. But I would like to spend some time now in this second point on what is certainly a startling phrase, the reproach of Christ. how, How did Moses know of the Messiah? How could he choose the reproach of Christ more than the treasures of Egypt? What did he know of Jesus? Well, much in every way. And I think this just gloriously illustrates how the biblical authors uh, across the board uh, read the whole history and what we call the Old Testament, and especially, as we're considering tonight, the, the, the history of the exodus from Egypt to be the history of Israel's relationship with Jesus. If that surprises you as it may, I'd like to give you a very brief review. I've spoken of this before. I've had a short sermon series on this and a nice series of DVDs by David Murray but uh, let me just lay it out. What is the author talking about? What did Moses know that we need to know about those times? Well, at practically every point in the whole history of God's people, we find that the Lord Jehovah comes as a man, capital M in my translation, or as the angel of the Lord, capital A in my New King James, or as the messenger of the covenant or any of a great number other uh, titles, the, the one who is the image of the invisible God. Nobody's seen God at any time, but God keeps showing up time and time again. We find him, uh, well, just considering the last few weeks here in Hebrews, we find him on the mountaintop staying Abraham's, Abraham's hand when he offers up his son Isaac. He says to, to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel. He confirms to Jacob, his servant, the promise of the land that his offspring will return to in the Exodus. He wrestles with Jacob and gives him a new name. He says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob said, well, tell me your name, I pray. Why is it that you ask about my name? Blesses him there. And he calls the place Peniel, quote, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Elsewhere, you realize he's called a man, capital in my translation, or an angel, uh, that is the, the messenger of the Lord. But it's very clear that this is no ordinary messenger. This is no mere man. This is the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. You go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Tell them I am has sent me to you. That's my name. He's, the, he's there at the pillar of fire by night and by day, protecting his people from the army, he appears as the army, as the commander of the army of Jehovah to Joshua and is worshipped by him when Israel comes to the promised land. Many, many more references. But if you have my translation, especially the New, the New King James, they take a conservative approach. Uh, but keep an eye out to every time there's an unexpected capital A, capital M, capital whatever, uh, so forth, For we find that Jesus, the Son of God, has always been the Savior of his people. And how do we know that? Well, you notice that this one shows up having some very different things about him, not like those other angels. There are five special things about him as he shows up time and time again. He identifies himself as God, saying to Moses, I am who I am, or to Manoah, my name is wonderful, uh, This is something that should not be in the mouth of an angel. And people are often alarmed because they realize that they are not just talking to anyone, but they see God 
face to face and are astonished that they can still live. This one who receives God's worship, as I mentioned, Joshua falling down before him and Manoah offering sacrifices to him, which he receives. Angels don't receive worship. This is the one who speaks God's words as he, for instance, says to Hagar, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. He performs God's actions as he tells Jacob, uh, sorry, as Jacob says, the angel who redeemed me from evil, bless the lads. He's not blessing by the name of any old angel. He's blessing by the angel, the messenger of the Lord, the word who was later made flesh. He has God's attributes um, as the one who met Hagar was called, you are the God who sees, saying, I have seen him who sees me. Or the angel that led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness, as the Lord says, obey his voice and don't provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. My name is on him not pardon transgressions, who can forgive sins but God alone exactly. And so, through this very brief survey, we realize that this was the Lord who led his people, also called Exodus 14, 19, the angel, capital A in my translation, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, as the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. Sometimes in the pictures of the Exodus, we see the picture of the cloud, but we don't see the picture of the man or the angel that is there, the Lord who himself leads his people out. But that was the picture that was given. And there's an interesting reference in Jude chapter 5 where there is a text problem. Some translations have Lord, some like the ESV have Jesus But it's a very striking verse. Here it is in the ESV, as it says, I want to remind you, though you once knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus led the people out of Egypt. Jesus destroyed those who would not believe. Especially striking because that sentence is written by the Lord's brother, Jude, if it is original. But just think about that. It's true either way. Jesus delivered Israel from Egypt. He won't receive that name, of course, until Joseph and Mary name their son, but he was the one who personally went and led Israel out of Egypt. And this was the choice that Moses made. He had all the riches of Egypt, or he had this wilderness wandering, bearing the reproach of a despised slave people and this leader who was none other than Christ. And by the way, a careful reading of 2 Corinthians 3 indicates that when the glory shone on Moses' face, when he met with the Lord in the tent of meeting, that was the glory of Jesus Christ, whom Moses saw face to face. And you think, is this some strange theology? Um, it used to be a lot more popular, perhaps, but uh, in our more recent times, people have not read the Old Testament as the New Testament teaches us to. But you remember, for instance, the famous Christmas song that is sung, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, who, uh, Emmanuel, who in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe and so forth, right? That there's none other than the Son of God meeting with Moses in the fire of the mountain. These are people that knew their 
Old Testament and know how to read it properly. Much, 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 much more could be said. But I give you just a few brief summaries. Irenaeus, early church father, the scripture is full of the Son of God's appearing, sometimes to talk and eat with Abraham, at other times to instruct Noah about the measures of the ark, at another time to seek Abraham, at another time to bring down judgment upon Sodom. Interestingly, as Jehovah calls down fire from Jehovah. Read that verse again, it's interesting. Uh, To direct Jacob in the way and to converse with Moses out of the bush. The Lord has always been appointed as the mighty deliverer of God's people. And again and again, at every important turn, we find him there. Jonathan Edwards writes, When Satan, the grand enemy, had conquered and overthrown man, the whole business of resisting and conquering him was committed to Jesus Christ. He thenceforward undertook to manage that powerful adversary. He was thus appointed the captain of the Lord's hosts and captain of their salvation and has always acted as such. And so he appeared from time to time. He's always there, redeeming, interceding, protecting, saving, comforting, commissioning, judging, delivering. Every time you see the invisible God, whom no man has seen, it was he. Well... Allow me one more brief summary as Tertullian covers a bunch of other texts. He writes, It was the sun who judged men from the beginning, destroying that lofty tower, Babel, and confounding their languages, and punishing the whole world in a flood of waters, and raining fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord pouring it down from the Lord. All caps. For he always descended to hold conversation with men, from Adam even to the patriarchs and prophets, in visions, in dreams, in mirrors, in dark sentences, always preparing his way from the beginning. Neither was it possible that God, who conversed with men upon earth, could be any other than that word which was to be made flesh. If you don't read the Bible this way, I, I urge you to begin. There's a way of reading the Bible and thinking about Jesus Christ that keeps us far from the fullest and greatest appreciation of him. We often think of him in his humiliation as a babe in the manger and as the teacher of Galilee and receiving little children. But it's only that when we go back and realize, oh wait, he is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the world sustainer by whose word, the word of his power, uh, all things consist. That Jesus struck down Egypt's firstborn and thundered in the law in Mount Sinai and overthrew the mighty nations of Canaan as the commander of the army of Jehovah and so forth. And I say it's only when we realize that this mighty Jehovah became incarnate in a stable that we realize the breathtaking, stunning truth of the incarnation of the Son of God and what humiliation he underwent to be beaten and slapped and spit upon and killed by his miserable creatures for our salvation. And how great was his love to do all this. Moses could see many of these things, but from afar. And he led a grumbling people. You know, it didn't go too well. But then we remember also that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded at every point. That Moses and Jesus were both born to be the Savior, rescued from their enemies at birth, 
Jesus also sojourned in Egypt, and out of Egypt the Lord called his son. Like the children of Israel, Jesus passed through the waters at his baptism. And though the Israelites failed in their temptations in the wilderness, and that short trip turned into 40 years, Jesus succeeded in temptations in the wilderness and spent only 40 days. But upon his return, he went up to the mountain and gave the law, and as Moses did from Mount Sinai, taught his people the way of righteousness. Jesus crucified at Passover, for he is our Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so many ways the Old Testament uses to describe the Exodus comes to describe Jesus supremely, ransom and redemption and deliverance. All these words that the New Testament uses to describe Christ's work have been borrowed from the words that Moses wrote. For just like the Israelites, though we were once slaves, slaves of sin, now the Son has set us free. And so as we trace their spiritual journey, we realize that we need just what they needed. We needed a Redeemer, a God to deliver us out of our slavery, to overcome our enemies, a provider to free us, bread from heaven, a lawgiver to tell us how to love and serve him, a friend, a God to be with us day and night whose protection never sleeps. And all this and much more Moses experienced, this dramatic decision to, to, to suffer all the reproaches of following such a figure in this this miserable company of people and all they're complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. He endured seeing him who is invisible. This God of insurmountable glory and indescribable majesty that led them in such a way was Jesus our Savior. And he who has seen me has seen the Father, he said. It can't be right if you are esteeming the riches of Egypt more than the reproaches of Christ. The worst things about Jesus are far, far better than the best things of the Egypt of this world. Are you trusting him for your forgiveness? Are you subject to him in your living? Are you looking to him for your hope now and forever? This mighty Lord who came to die that you might not perish but have everlasting life to lead you pillars of fire by night and clouds, pillar of clouds by day, safely to your eternal home and to find that this Jesus Christ is the key to all of life. That's what Moses knew. In conclusion, uh, Robert Murray McShane says in one of his sermons, you know, of all the doctrine of Christ that sometimes appears common and well-known and having nothing new in it. I'm tempted sometimes to pass and to go to some scripture more interesting, but this is the devil again, a red-hot lie. Christ is for us ever new, ever glorious. I think that unmasks a tendency that we sometimes get very comfortable with Christ and go on to other subjects. But when we are struck again and again with these surprising statements in the Bible and we realize that God has written this great story into virtually every page of the Bible for a great reason, that Christ would be to us ever new, ever glorious. There is no God behind the back of Jesus, no God other than Him. No God but the God we see and meet in Him. 
For as one says, Jesus is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God, poured out to redeem mankind, the mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and to save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. Go back and follow the ways of Moses, and you will find his Savior, Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what can we say? Behold, what manner of love have you given to us, and that we, in Jesus, should be called sons of God. We pray that you would help us more and more to think about this incredible destiny and to be filled with wonder and gratitude, even if for the moment we may have to suffer reproaches of Christ. We know that truly he has all that this world has to offer, and in his presence are pleasures forevermore. Help us to live more and more in line with this everlasting royal destiny. Bring us safely to the end of our pilgrimage. Father in heaven, help us to esteem the reproach of Christ as greater worth than all the riches of Egypt. For even though the Lord Jesus has every right to be ashamed of us, yet was not ashamed to call us brethren, God forbid that we should ever, ever be ashamed.